So when I was considering what I should do these two weeks that they're gone, uh, I kind of uh, thought back to my trip in Jerusalem, or my trip to Israel, and as we approached Jerusalem, one of the things that we did, and a lot of tour buses do, as you approach Jerusalem, because anywhere you are in Israel and you move toward Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. And uh, as you move up to Jerusalem, a lot of times you read the Psalms of Ascent. And now, Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest and uh, right after Psalm 119, you start the Psalms of Ascent. And there are 15 Psalms of Ascent beginning in Psalm 120, going all the way to 134. And we're not going to do all of those. We're going to be pretty aggressive to try to almost touch on three today, maybe. And, uh, but there... Uh, it's, uh, it's just an interesting approach as you start uh, moving toward these Psalms of Ascent. Several years ago, uh, I read a book by Eugene Peterson. Now, I, I really liked Eugene Peterson early on in his ministry when he wrote the message. I wasn't real crazy about the message. And then some of his later ministries, I wasn't real crazy about that. But he had some really good stuff early on. He pastored in... Um, Pennsylvania for many years, and then he moved to Montana, and he, and he was a, a professor and a, at Regent College, which is a good conservative school. Uh, and, uh, but he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and that book was about the Psalms of Ascent. And really what he talked about in there, or kind of like the subtitle of the book, was discipleship in an instant society. And so when you start looking at that uh, uh, discipleship in an instant society, uh, he said there's real importance in these psalms of ascent because these psalms of ascent are songs of discipleship. And, uh, and we live in this instant society where people are always wanting things to uh, happen quickly. Uh, they, and, and it affects the way they think, the way they uh, deal with pressures, uh, the way they look for solutions to problems, and they want everything to happen quickly. But it takes time, and as we look at these Psalms of Ascent, uh, we're going we're gonna to deal with how they were developed, how they were probably used, and the deep meaning that we find, especially in these first three that we're going to examine this evening. So let's pray, and then we'll start digging in. Father, I thank you so very much for the folks that are in Israel for the, the, this week and next week. We pray that you truly give them a trip of a lifetime, that they... Uh, are really drawn to the reality of biblical truth, that they're able to see sites that they've studied and dealt with, and, and that those, uh, the impact of just observing them and walking there and seeing them and touching and feeling and smelling, that it will affect them the rest of their life and that the pages of Scripture will come alive in a way that they never have before because of the imagery that they'll have in their minds as they've walked through Israel. Uh, as they're gone, we want to pray for them and pray for their strength, for their endurance, for their health, and for their ability to saturate truth from Scripture and apply it to their life in a way that's real and tangible. But Father, as we sit here and look at the pages of Scripture tonight, we ask you to speak to us Teach us, instruct us, and make us different because we've walked through your word this evening. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the things that Peterson said in his book was he said it's not difficult in the world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel, but it's really difficult to sustain the interest. There's millions in a, of people in our society or in our culture that make decisions for Christ, uh, but there's a dreadful attrition rate. I and mean, I, I would say that you see that even in, when you start a Bible study. 
a lot of times a Bible study will start with 50, maybe 100 people. But as it goes on, the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller because it takes work to dig into the Scripture and study the Scripture. Uh, Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence of mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's a little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Now, uh, as we look at these Psalms of Ascent, there's been a great deal of debate about what they... uh, what the songs of ascent means. Uh, the, the Hebrew phrase, songs of ascent, uh, meant a hymn or song that was to be going, used going up steps. Now, there were some that said that the ascents were uh, steps or gradual development of the psalms, of truth in the psalms themselves. But you don't find that consistent in all of them. You find it consistent in some, but not all. Uh, Some said that they were uh, the 15 steps uh, that separated the the court of women from the court of uh, Gentiles, from the court of men in the temple area because there were 15 steps and that the rabbis would sing a psalm as they took, went up each step. Uh, But there's no real evidence about that. Some said that they were psalms that were uh, written to those in Babylon as they longed to go back to Jerusalem. But I would would say that uh, the better explanation is that uh, the psalms were songs of pilgrims that were going up to the annual feast in Jerusalem. In other words, there were psalms that pilgrims would sing as they went to Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, or for the Day of Atonement. So those three annual feasts that they would always be going up to. So you, you look at Jerusalem, and uh, in anywhere you go in Israel, you're saying, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. Even if you're in the northern part of the country and you're headed south, you don't say I'm going down to Jerusalem, you say I'm going up to Jerusalem because of the altitude and that's, and, and, and that's what the truth is. So these 15 Psalms seem to be of used by pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem for these major feasts. And in some sense, there's a, a mild kind of sadness to them, but there's deep truths that we're going to examine as we walk through these. Uh, I would even say, because we're in Texas, that they're kind of they have kind of a Willie Nelson esque approach to them. You know, it, you know it, it's kind of like on the road again. Uh, just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends, going places I've never been, seeing things I've never see again. I can't wait to get a, on the road again. And that's just, you kind of think about getting on the road to Jerusalem as, as these pilgrims go up. So this, this cluster of psalms that we're going to look at tonight begins with Psalm 120. And, uh, and, and one of the things you have to consider when you look at these is these are, uh, this is poetry. And uh, I don't know about you, some of you really probably liked poetry when you were in school and you were really drawn to poetry and you kind of got it. And I like to sit next to somebody that got it because then they could explain it to me because I didn't know what iambic pentameter was and I couldn't tell what parallelism was. And I didn't, you know, so you have to, you have to look at these books of poetry a little bit different as you interpret them and, and as you deal with them. So, uh, at first glance, when we look at, um, Psalm 120, uh, Psalm 120 seems like a strange psalm uh, with which to begin this series uh, because it really has a feeling of a homesick people. And I say homesick people because you want to say, where were they? 
And, and I'm going to go to verse 5 first in Psalm 120, because verse 5 says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kadar. Now, when you look at that, you say, well, where is Meshech, and what are the tents of Kadar? Well, they're kind of extremes. Meshech is to the extreme north, and the tents of Kadar would be to the extreme south. And in the extreme south, the tents of Kadar would be tents of nomads that are wandering in a wilderness area. And as the psalmist is writing this, he's, uh, he's this pilgrim. Uh, and, and a pilgrim would be a homesick people uh, that's dissatisfied where they are or where they have been. And they want to go someplace better. And, uh, and as, we, as we look at this, he's, he's dealing with this, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshesh, and I dwell among the tents at Kadar. And, and he's with these Arabian nomads. And it's really, uh, it's really a metaphor for uh, being in an uncomfortable area where he's surrounded by heathens. So that, that's kind of, that's the setting. And, and when he starts uh, moving through the, going back through the psalm, we have to understand the setting and that woe is me kind of feeling. And, and you go back to verse 1 and 2. It says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and He answered me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So... Peter tells us that we're um, to live as aliens and strangers in this world, that this isn't our home. And so when he says that woe is me for our sojourn in these places, uh, he's living in a place uh, uh, that's, that's full of lying lips and this deceitful tongue. You know, when we think about uh, living among the heathen and finding them ourselves in a bad environment, uh, some authors have written about this and said, you know, we live in a land of lies. Lies that the world tells us. The world tells us that human beings are basically nice, that everyone is born equal and innocent and self-sufficient. The world tells us uh, that we could correct the world if we just give it a little bit more time and effort. And uh, and. What, what the psalmist is really saying is, no, I'm living in a world where, where people are really after me and they're really trying to destroy me. And he's feeling distance in verse 5, but in verse 1, he's really showing some distress. He says, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. So this is the beginning of this, where he was and how he's feeling. Uh, because he, he needs to be delivered from these lying lips and from this deceitful tongue. Uh, you look on at uh, verse you know, uh, 3 and 4, and he says, you know, what shall be given you and, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Uh, this deceitful tongue is an instrument of the enemy. And, uh, and as he deals with these sharp arrows, it's deceitful tongues that we face so often. If you look at uh, Psalm 63, verse 7 and 8, he says, the psalmist says, You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Uh, my soul clings to you, uh, for your right hand upholds me. So he knows where to go for help. And really, if you were to say, what is the tone for Psalms, for the book of Psalms? You have to go back to Psalm 1. And if you go back to Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the path of sinners, nor sit, sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So you have this contrast between a tree, 
firmly planted. And it goes on to say that it yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. But the contrast is with the wicked. And in the last part of Psalm 1, it says the wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in, in, in the tension that you see in Psalm 120, there's this tension that has been established even from the very first psalm that there's a way of the wicked and there's a way of the righteous. And God knows the way and God preserves the way of the righteous and upholds them and takes care of them. And, and, and the psalmist is crying out. He says, deliver my soul from these lying lips and from the deceitful tongue. And, and, and if there's something that's really true uh, about the world that we live in, that we live in a world that is... Uh, proliferates lies. Uh, you might say, if you were to look at this verse in our culture, you could say, deliver me from advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire. Uh, from the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy. From the lives of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality. Uh, from the lives of, uh, of teachers who often shape my behavior, my morals, so I'll live a long, happy, and successful life. From the lives of religious, the religious teachers who, who say that they can heal the wounds of people lightly. From moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of my fate. And the lives of pastors who leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the tradition of men. You know, we live in an environment where the truth of God has been rejected. And, and the truth of God's redeeming love uh, has been scorned and scoffed at. And, and, and so he comes back down to, you know, these, these sharp arrows of the warrior. You know, uh, he says, with the burning coals of the broom tree... There's, there's this warrior mentality that's going on. And if there's something that's really um, characteristic of uh, our world, um, uh, I think one scholar says that war is our chief legacy. Yeah, and, and it says the chief thing that our generation passes on to the next generation is war. And you kind of think, you know, treaties of history have been held at some time as something that would really work, and, and next thing you know, it, it doesn't. And, and one of the earliest of all historical records from Babylon was a, uh, a Sumerian base relief sculpture that shows these warriors with helmets and bows and arrows and, and, and spears ready to fight and ready to deal with war. So you have war in every uh, historic culture, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Phoenicia. Uh, you look at the Peloponnesian Wars. Uh, you look at Greece. You look at Rome. Uh, even going to the Middle Ages and you look at the Thirty Years' Wars. You, you, wars have, uh, you know, they've slightly, uh, you, you would say that they've decreased maybe in, in number, but they've increased in intensity. And when you look at World War I, uh, it, it re resulted uh, uh, in the loss of millions of people. And then, I mean, not even a century later, you have World War II. And, uh, and it took 60 million lives and estimated... You know, three hundred and forty billion to a trillion dollars lost property in World War Two. I did a little looking to say, you know, are we doing better? We haven't had war wars, but um, since World War Two, there's been two hundred and eighty-five distinct armed conflicts. You know, you talk about a legacy of war. There have been 954 political assassinations since World War II. Uh, 
uh, no telling how many uh, revolts, rebellions for independence. Uh, up to probably 2013, there had been uh, 1,162 uh, social rebellions that would have been documented if you just do a, a little bit of research. And, and so, and, and, and we as Christians understand that we are constantly at war. You know, that we are in a spiritual battle all the time. So as we look at this uh, living in, in this Meshach and Kadar that the psalmist mentions in verse 5, you know, it, it's, a, it's a general term for heathens, but we today, we're still living in a hedon, hedonistic, heathen sort of environment with all the conflict that we're dealt with. So uh, we come, you know, to, to verses 6 and 7. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. For I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So the psalmist is saying he's living among the peace, and he, he's living among the heathen, and he wants peace, and they want war. He wants truth, and they want lies. And... Uh, and and there's this tension and conflict. So as he starts his journey to Jerusalem, as he starts his ascent to Jerusalem, he's trying to leave this environment that is uh, controlled by the heathen and controlled by conflict and controlled by hostility and move toward the promise of, of peace in Jerusalem. So... You look through that first psalm of ascent, Psalm 120, and it kind of starts the journey for you. And then we move to Psalm 121. And if, and if you get to uh, Psalm 121, it's kind of the, the, the second of the pilgrim songs. And um, it's been said that maybe the devout Jews would have sung this song on their way to the highlands where Jerusalem was located for the annual feast. And when he says, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains, you know, that he would be starting to move up and be able to see the direction where he was headed. And it would, it would be along the valleys and rivers and mountain paths. Uh, and he would be singing something that would be hopeful, uh, yet he would be weary. Uh, because he was traveling, his feet were sore, and you realize they didn't have really great walking paths. You know, they were, they were rough. You know, it, it's just, it's a dirt path that they're walking on, and it's a, it's a difficult journey. But, uh, and, and some writers have even said that this would be an evening song for the last encampment before they start moving into Jerusalem. But that's really uh, pure speculation. But he says, I would lift my eyes to the mountains, and from where shall my help come from? So that's the question. And the obvious answer he gives in verse 2 when he says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, you know, he says, Where does my help come from? My help comes from the creator of the universe. Uh, and, and he acknowledges that he's, we're going to really need help on our journey, and the Creator is, our sor is the source of our help. Now, there is a, professor of science, and uh, he is a paleontologist that got his doctorate at Harvard, taught at Bryan College outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and now teaches at a university in Georgia. His name is Kurt Wise, and he is a, he, he, he's a great professor that teaches great lessons on a young earth and a seven-day, six-day creationist. And uh, he had a little exercise that he did when he was studying the Scripture one time, preparing to teach on creation. And he took a Bible and he cut out every reference to creation he could find, every mention of creation. And he said after he did that, the pages just fell out and the Bible completely collapsed. 
And so I, I say that to say you look as you study the Bible and you look for mentions of creation and you have one here in verse 2 because the Lord it makes this statement who made heaven and earth. So it's, it's just this one part of the second verse in Psalm 121 is a, is a reference to the Lord as creator. And he says, where does my help come from? The, the creator is my source of help. And, and, he, and he finds great sufficiency in what God's going to do. He says, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, who, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. So we see that the Lord is a valiant watchman. You know, when a person asks, uh, who is going to guard over you? Who's going to be your watchman? You, know, you want somebody that's going to be faithful, someone that's going to be steady, someone that's going to be always there. So who do we look for? We look for the creator of heaven and earth to always be there for us. And, you know, you have, um, you might have a son that says, Dad, are you watching me? Or you might have a grandson that says, are you watching me? You say, yeah, I'm watching. Yeah, I'm watching. He says, no, you're not. You're looking at your phone. No, I'm watching. The Lord never looks at his phone. You know, he's never distracted. He's never disengaged. He's always there and always this valiant watchman that never slumbers and never sleeps. And he's always guarding us. Uh, in, in verses 5, it says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Uh, he is the one um, that's protecting you. Uh, it's real interesting. I know some of you have probably seen photos of some of the folks in Israel. I, it's, um, you, know, you know, one of the real reasons to have Facebook is just to track people. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a, that's how I stalk people. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it, but it's fun because they're all wearing caps. You know, almost all of them. There, there's a few that are capless. And Todd Pinkerino wasn't wearing a cap today, I think. But, uh, you know, but because the sun beats down on you. You know, the sun just is, is hard and harsh and can be. If you're outside, I mean, every, all these people have been in offices and stuff, you know, for months. It's winter here and they haven't been out in the sun. So they're, they're getting all kinds of exposure. Uh, but it's a, it's, once again, it's a metaphor, but it's a graphic way that the sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. There was a, there was a kind of a, an attitude in biblical times that if you were exposed to the moon at night, it would affect your mentality and you might go crazy. You know, so, so that's why the psalmist would include something like, you know, not only do you have to, you don't have to worry about the sun by day, you don't have to worry about the moon by night, that the Lord is going to protect you all the time. And, and He is one who is going to protect you from evil and, and keep your soul. The Lord is the one who will guard your going out and your coming in. Uh, and... And we, and we need to have that confidence and that, and that presence of God in our life. Um, you know, we, we have, a, we have a, uh, an assurance that God is going to be with us, that God is going to protect us, and, and, and He'll take care of us. And um, as we do that, we need to know that each step we walk and each breath we breathe uh, that we know that we're preserved by God. We know that we're accompanied by Him. We know that we're ruled by Him. And no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, that the Lord is going to preserve us from evil and He will keep our life. Uh, on our journey, you know, as we walk through the psalm of ascent or as we walk through our life, we have to have a real confidence that the creator of heaven and earth is our protector. He's the one that's going to sustain us. He's the one that's going to keep us. And, and, and as you move through this uh, psalm and, and, it, and as you look at these 
verses and you come to 7 and 8 where it says, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He'll keep your, your soul. Uh, God's going to keep us from all harm. God will watch over our lives. He will watch over our comings and goings. And He is going to do all of that now and forever. So it's, it's in a promise and assurance. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have problems. It doesn't mean that we're not in difficult situations. But it does promise His protection and His, the way He'll sustain us. You know, it, it ought to remind us of some New Testament verses um, that we have. You know, Romans 8. You know, when you come to Romans 8 and you look at verses 35 through 39, you know, those, are, those are great verses to really memorize and hang on to. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. And, and, and you go into verse 38 or 37, it says, In all things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are verses of assurance that we really need to hang on to when we're going through difficult times. And in the men's Bible study on Sunday night, we just finished up Jude. And when you get to the last two verses of Jude, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. But that phrase at the beginning of verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you. It's God that keeps us. It's not our own strength. It's not our own uh, ingenuity. It's not our own creativity. It's God who keeps us on this journey. He, he's going he's to carry us all the way to the end. And, and, and trouble is going to come our way. Uh, trouble is going to cause a problem for us. And, and when it comes, we know that we have the Lord with us. Uh, every danger that Paul wrote about in Romans 8, he experienced. And when you look at his credentials for his apostleship in 2 Corinthians, and you look at what he endured, he did not have an easy life. You know, if anybody tells you once you become a Christian, you're going to be peace, joy, love, everything's going to be hunky-dory nice, they lied. You know, uh, what, what the Scripture says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, Jesus said, they hate me, they'll hate you. You know, we're going to have adversity, but we have a Father that's going to guard our going out and our coming in all the time. That He's watching over us. That He's going to protect us. And, and the point of, of Psalm 121 isn't that we're not going to have problems, uh, but that God's going to keep us safe and, and, uh, when we go through them. And so when you look at that previous chapter, you know that there was distress there. But the reality is that, that, that God is, is there. Um, Peterson went on to write, he said, he said that Christian life is not uh, this, this quiet garden where we walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord, nor a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare blue ribbons and gold medals with others who have made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. It's going to uh, God, when you travel, whether it's safe ground or difficult ground, uh, we're under we're we're His citizens under whatever government we're in, and we we go to the same grocery stores, to the same gasoline 
stationed that everybody else does, but we go with the Lord, uh, that we are not alone. Each step we take, each breath we breathe is, is given to us by the Lord. And, and a mature Christian is one who's not going to be blind to trouble nor in fear of it uh, because he's following Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said in John 16, he says, In the world you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when you start taking a look at this, at this difference that we have here, uh, that, we, that God's with us, we come to Psalm uh, 122. Now, this is when you start looking at Jerusalem and you've entered in and you, you, you kind of, you, you've entered into the city. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house uh, of David. Uh, when we come to the house of the Lord, when we move into His presence, you know, into this earthly city. You know, uh, Jerusalem wasn't some uh, weak type of heavenly city to come to, but it was a cause for real joy to the arriving pilgrim. Uh, I will tell you that uh, Jerusalem has always been a fascinating place. Uh, do you remember who was the first... Uh, mention of Jerusalem uh, in Scripture. Where was that? Anybody remember? Salem. Salem, Melchizedek in Genesis 14. So that's your first mention of Jerusalem in, in Genesis 14. And you think of everything that has happened in that place. You know, that if there's an epicenter of the world, it's Jerusalem. If there's an epicenter, it's Mount Moriah. What are things that have happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham, the offering, up of Isaac. offering up of Isaac by Abraham. What else? No, that was in Carmel. What's that? It, it's that place. I mean, and you and you realize that when you when you look at that, you stand on the on the Temple Mount area, and right now the Dome of the Rock is there uh, that the Muslims control. You think of all the wars and the conflicts. You think of the city of Jerusalem being destroyed in seventy A.D. You know by the Romans. You know, all the wars, all the conflict that has been there, that has taken place there. You think about David taking the, the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, you know, and establishing, the, you know, David's role in establishing Jerusalem as, as, as a capital city of, of Israel. I mean, you know, you, you think about, you know, the significance of that place, and, and it's amazing so when he, when he comes, I, I was, let us go to the house of the Lord, you know, and, and our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, to walk within the gates uh, of the city. You know, and remember, when we think about the gates of Jerusalem, I mean, um, the eastern gate is, is walled up. Right now, you can't enter through the eastern gate. And when will we be able to enter the eastern gate? When Christ returns, that's when we'll enter into the eastern gate. Yeah, that's why it's walled up. Nobody can get through it. So, I mean, you, you know, there's tremendous significance to, to that place right now. I, I mean, I think that it was exciting when, uh, when we moved our embassy to Jerusalem. 
you know, that, that was a significant thing because once again, it, it gives more prominence to that city and, and what it really means. So when we come to this third song of ascent, uh, you know, out of this, out of this small group, you know, uh, the biblical record of the prominence of, of Jerusalem is, is maze is amazing. And, um, and, as amazing as it is, it's only a weak type of the heavenly city of Jerusalem that we're going to have. You know, it's just, it's just a type. So it just gives us this picture. Um, and, and when he says in uh, uh, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, you know, there's a couple of things that he could be writing about. And depending on, you know, who wrote it and when he wrote it, and he's not necessarily talking about uh, the physical tightness of the city, but he's bringing the people that come there. You just think about the pilgrims that came to that city during these annual feasts. You know, the number of people that went to Jerusalem during Passover. You think about the lambs that were sacrificed at Passover. You know, that blood would run in the streets because of the number of sacrifices that took place in Jerusalem during the Passover. And you think about the change that happened on the day of Pentecost at that feast when Peter stood up after the Holy Spirit came and proclaimed and, and, and thousands responded to the gospel and the church was really established as we've studied in the book of Acts. So, so as, as we consider this earthly city, um, the psalmist isn't really thinking just in physical terms, but he says, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Uh, that he is understanding that there is unity in this city. But also, he says... Uh, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. That uh, Jerusalem is also understanding and understood as a place of, of judgment. Uh, and, and at that time, you, Jerusalem was a pagan place. You think about the pagan aspects. You know, what did they do to the prophets in Jerusalem? They killed them. What they do to people that they disagreed with? They stoned them. You know, it's it's a pagan place. It was a pagan place. It is today. If you talk to one of the guides that are with the, if you talk to a transparent, honest guide that's with a tour group in Israel today, he'll tell you that 80% of the Jews in Jerusalem are not practicing, but they're humanistic. You know, they, they, don't, they don't look for the Messiah. They don't anticipate a Redeemer. They, they're just living to make money and get through today and, you know, hope to find some sort of... They don't even deal much with an afterlife. They don't think about judgment. They don't think about the wrath of God. They don't, you know, they, they deny that God's in control. You know, although they, when the rockets start coming, maybe they pray. You know, I... I you know, that might be the only thing. Derek Kidner, who um, has written a couple of great commentaries on Psalms, uh, but he talked about this aspect of, of judgment, that thrones were set for judgment. And Kidner says the dispensing of justice is a ruler's first duty and best gift. And he refers to Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4, and Isaiah 2, verse 4, and Isaiah 42, 3. And he says, dispensing justice is one of the two God-given functions of right government. The other is defending its citizens against violence, either from within or from without. Now, when I looked at that statement, I was looking at Kidner's book, I thought, how does that apply to us today? You know, if a, if a, the, the first duty of, uh, of, of a government is to dispense justice and the other one is to uh, defend its citizens against, against violence, 
you know, we're 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 living in a in a world right now that denies justice and promotes violence. You know, and, and that's the that's a tension that we live in as Christians today. So that's why you know I think that this psalm and these these psalms are very relevant to where we are, not just where you know the pilgrims were in those days, but where where we are as pilgrims today. That we look to the Lord to to uh, to deal out judgment and to give protection. Um, and he says. The thrones of the house of David. And then he goes on and he says there's a real need for peace. And he, and he prays for the peace of Jerusalem. A lot of times you'll hear people say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I've heard Netanyahu say that. I've heard you know, different Bible teachers say that. I've heard Joel Rosenberg you know, say that. He's, he's living in Jerusalem now. And he, and he says that there's a real need for peace. Uh, but there can be no peace without justice. And he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity uh, within your palaces. You know, he's urging those uh, to say, you know, turn to the Lord and it's not a one-time prayer uh, with an idle word, but it's it's a it's a prayer that says God is the one that can bring peace. He says, "May peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces." For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, "May peace be with you." For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So his prayer is that um, may those who love you be secure. That our, our security comes in the Lord and in our relationship with Him. Um, this peace is that Hebrew word shalom that is so rich. And it doesn't mean just the absence of war, uh, but it means uh, a habitation of, uh, of the presence of the Lord that provides peace with God and, and peace with others. Um, you look, you know, at that eastern wall. This is the eastern wall of Jerusalem looking over the Temple Mount. And that gate that is closed up. And you think uh, of who built that wall. You know, some of those stones, if you, if you go to the base stones there, you know, there are stones that were placed there by Nehemiah. You know, that's the, that's the awesomeness of being in a place that you go back to and, and you understand biblical characters were involved in the development of this place and what it is. And, and it's a place where God discloses himself and man responds to God's disclosure here. And so uh, the desire is that these pilgrims would start their journey in this land where the heathen has been around them, where lives have been bombarding them. And on the journey, they would find that God would sustain them and keep them as they were on this path to Jerusalem. And when they, when they arrived in the city, that they would be glad and they would say, you know, let us go into the house of the Lord because our feet are standing within your gates. And, and, and it, it's there where they would find uh, the peace uh, with God and the peace of God that they could move in. Uh, even in a pagan time and a pagan world. So you know, these psalms of ascent are psalms of encouragement, psalms of being a pilgrim. But I think it's also psalms that when we look at psalms of discipleship, that we have to understand that, that what we are to live is we are to live a long obedience in the same direction that we're to be progressively growing in Jesus Christ, that we are bombarded with uh, 
with violence. We're bombarded with hostility. We're bombarded with uh, spiritual oppression and spiritual opposition. But we understand that the Lord is the one that deals the truth out. That the Lord is the one that protects us. He is the one that sustains us. You know, He is the one uh, that provides the help. The Creator is, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. And, and as I move in to His presence, you know, I will say, may peace be within you, uh, and I will seek your good. Uh, I'm excited um, that, that members of our fellowship are in that place now, in that land. And then in a few days, they will be going up to Jerusalem. Uh, we miss them, you know, because, you know, we, yeah, they're, they're part of us. Uh, but they're on a journey like pilgrims during the festival days. They're going up to a special time and a special presence with the Lord. And, and what we do is we pray that it'll be special for them not so they have a great experience, but so God transforms their heart and, and, and they live differently because they've been and seen and touched and smelled and felt things that will, will make an impression on their life. Does that give them a better opportunity than us? It gives them a different opportunity. But as we walk through scriptures, as we see what God wants for us, as we battle uh, in, as, as pilgrims needing to make progress, you know, we hold on to the truths of these psalms and experience them because we know that the creator of heaven and earth is the one that gives us our help. We know that when we come into the house of the Lord that there's a special fellowship for us that there's a special fellowship that we share as we encourage each other and build each other up so this is given for our security as we move up to Jerusalem Father thank you for um, these words from these psalms that that reassure us that even though we're surrounded by hostile opposition that is opposed to you, that stands against you, uh, we thank you for your presence, the reality of the promise that you're the one that provides us our help, that you're the one that deals with the deceitful, that you are the one that handles the enemies. We thank you that you're our keeper we thank you that you will protect us from evil. And we thank you for the anticipation of standing within your gates. We thank you for the peace that only you can provide through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you have made available to us in him. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.